We're continuing um, in our Easter tide sermons. So we are in the season of Easter, and I had mentioned before previously that the Lenten season is 40 days of fasting in preparation emotionally, spiritually, and mentally for the crucifixion. And Easter is not just one day of the calendar, it's a whole season. It, Easter tide season, it is 40 days traditionally of, what is it? Feasting. Feasting. So we've got two more sermons left where we're talking about the implications of the resurrection. And so we, it is not just that the res, Jesus rose from the dead, and that guarantees that when we die, we'll rise from the dead. It, it does say that, but it is much more than that. The resurrection declares an entirely new reality about the world we live in because it launches the new creation. I said last week, I think I said this, that the reason the resurrection launches the new creation more than any other thing in Jesus' ministry is because the one thing that characterizes the world in its sin and brokenness since the fall is death. Death is like a reigning monarch over this fallen, broken world. And no one escapes from death. You know the saying, you know, no one escapes death and taxes. If, you're, if, you've got, if your accountant's good enough, you'll probably escape taxes. But you will not escape death. And the reason the resurrection launches the new creation is because it is the victory and conquest over death. And so the old creation is characterized by death, the new creation is characterized by life. And that's why we're talking about the implications of the resurrection. Uh, Matthew 28, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 10 and 16 through 20. Now after the Sabbath... Toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He's not here, for he's risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. And skip down to verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, now we pray that you would open our hearts, that we might glean the wisdom of this passage, that that we might um, truly come to grips with the mission you have charged each and every one of us with as the people of God and and as members of the church universal. You have given us a charge. Help us, Lord, to be convicted and convinced by it and to be transformed by the message of the gospel and leave this place differently. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, the resurrection says so much to us about hope beyond death and God's power to redeem suffering. 
it says we can be confident in sickness and that death will finally be overcome. And it also gives us comfort when we're facing the death of a loved one because we know that in Christ, they'll live again. And it says also that the confidence that we have in the face of death, and especially as we face our own mortality, I don't know about you, but as I get older, I think about my death more frequently. Maybe that's just me personally, but I feel like I'm always thinking about dying. But what the resurrection does is it helps us stare down our own mortality with a sense of hope, and it's not an empty hope. It's not just wishful thinking, but it's a certain confidence we have that, that death may be a reality for us, but that it is not an ultimate reality. It is a reality that will be overcome. And the resurrection is also a creation-affirming event. It teaches us that God cares for the physical creation. And God cares for human bodies, and he cares for the environment, and so should we. <clears throat> we should love this world, and we should serve its people, but we shouldn't love it too much. Because the resurrection is the first taste of the life to come, and it points beyond the world that exists at this moment. But the most important implication of the resurrection remains, and that's the Great Commission, which we just read. Maybe you've heard of the Great Commission, but you didn't realize that the Great Commission in Matthew's version of the resurrection is essentially the only thing Jesus says to his disciples post-resurrection. Now, we know from other gospel accounts in Mark and Luke and John that Jesus said other things, but Matthew wants to focus uniquely on this commission, this charge that the disciples received from Jesus after the resurrection. And he is giving them this call to go out and launch out into the world. And he empowers them to disciple all of the nations. You may remember before, Jesus had limited the scope of the disciples' activity to Israel. Right? Jesus is approached by a Gentile woman who asks Jesus for a, a favor. And he says, I am sent only to the lost sheep of the household of Israel. But after the resurrection, that changes. The ministry takes on a global um, vision. I mean, think about Jesus like a visionary, you know? Someone saying, Jesus, so you know, tell, me where, tell me where you see this movement in five years. Well, we're going to go to the ends of the earth. You know, there's 11 of them. We're going we're gonna to hit every corner of the globe. I mean, there's, I don't know, maybe 50-something of us in here, and it would be like me saying, the mission of our church, West County, is to go to every single country on the planet and evangelize everyone. And you would just go, yeah, that's pretty lofty. But that's Jesus' vision of what the church is to do. And obviously not in a brief five-year plan, but from his mindset, the gospel is so important. The message that Jesus has brought to the world is so life-changing that it's not just meant to change lives, it's meant to change reality. It's meant to change the world. And so their mission field is nothing less than the entire planet. But I'm getting ahead of myself. In verse 16, Jesus says, I mean, it says, Matthew says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. It is interesting that Jesus dies in Jerusalem or right outside the gates of Jerusalem, but he sends them back to Galilee, which was the headquarters initially 
You may remember, as we preached the book of Luke a couple years ago, that they start in Capernaum, which is this region around Nazareth, Nazareth and the Galilee region, which is this backwater region of the Mediterranean world. So if you think of Rome as like Paris or New York City, Galilee is like, I don't know, Appalachia. And it's a stinging critique of power, fortune, and fame when you think about it. That the God of all creation who sent his son into the world to be its you know, reigning ruler, his headquarters is in some backwater equivalent of like a hillbilly neighborhood where there's not a whole lot of power and importance and wealth with a group of mostly uneducated manual laborers. So uh, what it takes to change the world, apparently, and we're about to learn in the next couple of verses, is Jesus is empowering. That's really all. In fact, Jesus is empowering is more important than all the education and wealth and fame and worldly power that a person can have because his power supersedes all that. When you get to verse 17, it says, when they, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. The Greek word means they wavered with hesitancy. And if you think about why some of them may have wavered, the last time they all saw Jesus, they were running away from him in Gethsemane. Right? So I grew up on the streets in L.A., and we would call that, you know, punking out. All the disciples punked out, you know, all their courage just evaporated. It just emptied right out of them when Jesus got arrested. And they weren't there at the cross either, except for John with some of the women. And now Jesus is risen, and some of them are eager to worship him, but others are uncertain of the reception that they're going to have. And in this context, it's a very understandable human response, isn't it? That the last time you saw your master, you were running away while he was being arrested. And so some of them worshipped, but some of them wavered with hesitancy. That's what it means when it says they doubted. They doubted what kind of reception they would receive from him. You can understand. Well, the disciples had punked out pretty bad, but Jesus still invites them, and he calls them to himself, and he has a message for them. He invites them, and even when we are unfaithful, he still invites us, and he speaks to us. And this is what Jesus says. He says in verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, when people talk about the Great Commission, they, they talk about Matthew 28, 19, because the crux of the commission is verse 19, but I've always been under the impression that you cannot get at the Great Commission without verse 18, because the rest of it doesn't really work unless Jesus has all this power and authority empowering the mission. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In fact, from verses 18 to 20, the word all is used four times. All authority has been given to me, so go disciple all the nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I am with you all ways. In Greek, it's the exact same word repeated four times, and it means entirely like encompassing of everything. And Jesus is saying, I have all authority and power in heaven and earth. He's been invested with this special delegation of power that would really rub raw 
many first century Jewish hearers, the idea for them is that only Yahweh in heaven has all power and authority. And so this idea that one person, an actual individual of body and flesh, has been invested with all cosmic power, not just on heaven, but it, not just on earth, but in heaven as well. Heaven and earth together. It would, it would kind of offend the senses to hear that. And so they're still coming to grips with who Jesus is, and this statement that all authority and power has been given to him and granted to him is quite radical. It's a radical statement. Now, this is what Jesus was holding out for. You remember when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness, and Satan offers him all the kingdoms of this world if he would just bow down? Well, he's received something much greater because he's received from the Father not just the kingdoms of this world, but all of the heavenly powers as well. All of it is under his power now. When you think about the disciples' commission, what they're being given, what they're, what they're receiving from Jesus, this charge to go out with the backing of all un, an unlimited cosmic power, it helps you to understand how the first disciples and the early church was able to do what they did. I, I can only think about it comparing it to like a U.S. ambassador in a small little office in a hostile country. You know, diplomatic relations are a tricky thing because with your allies, it's no big deal, but some of the countries that you're hot and cold with, you know, your ambassador, you know, sometimes you want to pull them out because you don't know if they're safe. But an ambassador who goes to a place like Libya or some country that's, that has traditionally been hostile to us, they go with the idea that they've got the backing and the power and the might of the United States government backing them up. Well, that's the hope, at least. But that's the idea. And the idea for the disciples is that they've got all the backing and might and power of heaven. Now, I don't know about any of you, maybe you've been in a supervisory position, but if you were given a mandate by your boss, maybe you were someone else's boss, and you were given a mandate by your boss, you may know that the message you've got to bring to someone is not a pleasant one, or maybe they may not enjoy hearing what you've got to say, but you've been given this mandate, and if they've got a problem with you, they can go to the big boss, right? Or maybe it's happened to you. Someone came to you and said, hey, look, everything's going to change. This is the new program we're going to be using, and you've got, to, you know, you've got two weeks to learn it. And you may not like it, and they say, hey, don't, don't talk to me. Talk to the big boss. In some ways, what the church and the early disciples are being given is this commission that what they're proclaiming is from God himself. It's this mandate from heaven itself saying, I'm with you. I'm behind you. I'm backing you up. It also harkens back to this prophecy from the book of Daniel, where Daniel prophesies about envisioning um, the Son of Man going up to the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7, 13. There came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. And this is the fulfillment of that Daniel prophecy that the Son of Man has gone up to the Ancient of Days. Jesus' blood sacrifice of himself was offered on the altar as a perfect once-for-all sacrifice. And now he's been given glory in a kingdom and that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. 
we have the might and the power and the backing of one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, here's the disconnect with that. Sometimes it doesn't feel like that. <clears throat> Sometimes it just doesn't feel like that, especially when it seems that your life is very pedestrian, right? That you seem to struggle just like everybody else. It doesn't always seem like doors just swing wide open for you. It doesn't always seem like God is backing you up through every trial and every conflict, but the promise is that he's with us. The promise is, is that at the end of the day, God's might, power, and love is behind us. It doesn't mean we get a get-out-of-jail pass every time there's a trial, but it means that as you go through the trial, God is with you, and his power, his sovereign power is keeping you, and he's with you, and he is backing you. And he's going to see that your efforts through life, whatever you do, succeeds. In fact, this is the point I want to make before we really get to our first point. Because Jesus has all power and authority in heaven and earth, it makes the Great Commission to go out and disciple the nations not just a suggestion, but a guarantee of success. It makes the Great Commission a guarantee of success. Now, you might say, well, I don't know if that's true. I've preached to people. I'm not talking about individually. I'm talking about as a whole. The church corporately, historically, in this age, will be victorious and successful. And I always say this is one thing historically that you can demonstrate to be absolutely true. Jesus starts off with really 11, 11 apostles because Judas betrays. And now there are over 2 billion people in the world, and we're only about 2,000 years into this thing, that profess Christianity. Now, who is and who isn't saved is not my problem. That's for God to figure out. But the idea that in just a little over 2,000 years, we've gone from 11 core disciples to over 2 billion people, to me, is proof that the Great Commission is not a suggestion. It is a guarantee of success because it is being backed by God's very sovereign power. And when you think about it like that, it changes how you think about your own witness and your own faith and the people that you come in contact with and the purposes of God that we are serving for the long term. You've got to have a long view of history. If you're impatient or you're short-sighted or your view of history is shallow, you're not going to get this. But you've got to have a long view of history. A day with the Lord, a day with the Lord is just a thousand years. You've got to think God's thoughts after him. You gotta take the long view. We're playing the long game here, you could say. <clears throat> so the first thing I want us to see is the structure of the commission. The structure of the Great Commission is to make disciples by doing two things. In the Greek, there are two participles. So the only imperative, the only finite verb that's an imperative is the phrase, the word make disciples. All right? That's what the Great Commission is. The way that happens is by baptizing and teaching. So this is the commission Jesus gives them. Make disciples by baptizing and teaching. It is not insignificant that baptizing comes before teaching here. And that's different from what has become the common practice in many Christian circles 
where baptism sort of becomes this graduation ceremony after someone has been sufficiently discipled in the faith or been sufficiently convinced that Jesus is Lord or they've had some amount of teaching. And I just want to say that if, if, we're, if, if the order of if the word order in Matthew's gospel is meant to be noticed, I think it is, he's presenting a different model whereby baptism is the point of enrollment into a process of learning which is never complete. In other words, baptism is not the graduation ceremony. Baptism is the initiation into a life of learning that is never truly complete. To the day we die, we'll be growing and learning as we are taught the gospel. That never stops. You don't get the gospel and you sufficiently, you know, have learned it and okay, now you've passed, you know, the six-week course on Christianity, now you can get baptized. I think the word order is important here. I do not think it is, it's happenstance or a coincidence that baptizing comes before teaching. Y'all picking up what I'm laying down? Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the Christian community is a school of learners at various stages of development rather than divided into two groups of the baptized who have arrived and those who aren't yet ready. Number two, uh, we make disciples by baptizing. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't want to get too theological, but the doctrine of the Trinity, which, which was not really codified until 325 AD in the Council of Nicaea, is still found in its nascent form here in this passage of Scripture. In other words, what I'm saying is there is not a full-blown Trinitarian theology in the New Testament, but it's the, the brick and mortar of it is found in different places, and this is probably the epicenter that we are to baptize disciples in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And what's interesting is in Greek, the name is, is singular. So it is taking these three divine persons of the Godhead and uniting them in a singular title, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And what's even more shocking for first century people hearing this is the idea that the Son now includes himself in the divine name that allegiance by disciples is no longer simply to God the Father, what they would understand to be Yahweh, but also now the Son. This is radical stuff. Because Jesus is essentially including himself in the divine identity. That he now is worthy of allegiance, he is worthy of worship, he is worthy of obedience, and he is placing himself in this title with the Father and the Holy Spirit the very spirit that created the world in the book of Genesis. <clears throat> so we're to be baptizing in the name of the Father and Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now after the fall of Rome through about the 6th and 8th century when Christian missionaries went into central and northern Europe to evangelize the barbarians, the tribal chieftain was converted and then the whole tribe would follow suit. And I make that point because I want to say that Baptism was not always something that happened on an individual basis. So, of course, in the New Testament, we have, we have cases of some household baptisms. There were many cases where individuals were baptized. But there is also, in the history of evangelism, as the gospel 
did go out and cover the globe and finally went to Europe, and I use Europe just as an example because they were uncivilized barbarians at one time, the Germanic and Scandinavian tribes of Central Europe from the 6th and 8th centuries. And missionaries would go and they would preach the local tribal chieftain, and then the whole tribe would follow suit based on what the chief said. One of my favorite stories is the story of Boniface, a missionary in the early 8th century who cut down Thor's oak. It's a true story. Thor's oak, which is also referred to as the Donner oak, was a sacred tree worshipped by the Germanic tribes. In fact, uh, one of the reasons that we even have the Christmas tree in our celebration of Christ is kind of a conciliatory prize to the pagans who we won over to the gospel. And some people say, oh, the Christmas tree is pagan. Well, it may have been at one time, but it isn't any longer because we've redeployed it for Christian use, if I can say it like that. But Boniface went to the Germanic tribes who were worshiping, you know, the, the, the gods, and there was Thor's oak, which was this massive oak tree, and they had this idea that no one could cut down this oak tree or the gods, particularly Jupiter or Thor, would strike them dead. And Boniface relieved a previous missionary before him named Willibald, who had preached the gospel but had not had much real success in converting the tribes of Central Europe. And Boniface, you know, sometimes it just takes a fresh look. I don't know, you know. You, you got to bring, bring somebody in from the outside. And he had a certain sense of boldness, but Willibald had sort of primed the pump by preaching the gospel, but they just couldn't, they just couldn't get it. And so Boniface shows up one day with an ax, and he walks up to Thor's oak, and he says, if I cut down Thor's oak and, and I'm not struck dead, will you believe? And they said, yeah. You know, I don't know if they said yeah, but they said yes. I mean, there was some type of arrangement made. And he swings that axe and cuts down Thor's oak. And everybody is waiting for him to be struck down and he's left standing. And in that one day, about 3,000 people were baptized. And it wasn't necessarily because they all individually were convinced by the message, but as a group they converted. And I make that point to say that the gospel spreads in unique and interesting ways, and it does, there is no cookie-cutter approach. So if you're thinking that there is this formula that I have to say these 5 or 10 or 20 words, and this is the kind of response I have to get every single time, or I have not faithfully preach the gospel, I just want to say that's not accurate. The gospel is proclaimed in all a variety of different ways, and people are persuaded and convinced and converted through all sorts of means and channels in the scope of an economy of God's grace. For some people, it's just the fatigue of resisting. And it's like a snowball effect. They've heard a little bit about Jesus here and there, and maybe 10 or 20 years go by and finally they surrender, or maybe a missionary comes into your village and cuts down your sacred tree. But the gospel goes forth victoriously and successfully because it's empowered by the risen Lord who is enabling the message. Now, what is baptism? Or why baptism? Just think about it. Just in your head, say, like, why baptism? Maybe... maybe a thought experiment. You can just in your mind start to come up with some answers. Well, in one sense, baptism is just the act of washing 
that has been sacramentally redeployed, right? There's nothing particularly sacred about putting water on yourself, right? We do it most every day. We wash our hands, we wash our face, we wash our body. Sometimes you take a bath. Women probably more than men. But baptism is the washing, the act of washing that has been sort of like sacramentally redeployed as a purification rite to represent the establishment of a new relationship. Now, in the New Testament, baptism means a lot of different things. There are metaphors to describe baptism. Christian baptism. It is purification. It is burial. It is all these different things. But the history of baptism, and I won't go get, get too long and too deep in this, but when Gentiles started to convert to the Jewish faith before Jesus came along, Baptism rose as a popular symbol of conversion. And one of the reasons why it became popular is because circumcision was limited to men. And so this did not have the biggest resonance with Gentiles. And so when Gentiles came to the Jewish faith, they would be baptized as kind of a, a ritual purification John's baptism is also symbolic by the time you get to the New Testament because it is a baptism symbolizing purification and their repentance, although they had not received the gospel message yet. What's significant is the profound theological reality of purification in baptism. The water itself, thanks God for the illustration, This building is being sprinkled as we speak. Just kidding. But the water, there's no power in the water per se, but the, the water conveys something that has actually happened. So one view of baptism is it's simply symbolic, but another view is, yes, it is symbolic of something that is actually happening which is the purification of our hearts from sin and unrighteousness and a right standing with God. So it represents something very powerful. The purification, and because of that purification, the idea is a new relationship. A new relationship has been initiated. It is, it's a profound reality when you think about it. And our view is that in the same way that in the supper, something mystically and cosmically is happening, this is not just a mere memorial. It is a memorial, but there is true spiritual strength happening when we take part of this sacrament, and the same is true of baptism. It is not just a symbol. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up being told that baptism is an outward sign of an inward faith. How many, how many people have heard that before? A lot of people have heard that. You know something that's nowhere in the Bible? It's something we say, and it's not necessarily untrue, but primarily that is not what baptism is. It's nowhere in Scripture. Primarily, baptism signifies the work of purification that God performs when we are named as his own. So it is a sign and a seal Number three, we make disciples by teaching. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. 
Listen, to be a disciple is to obey Jesus' teaching and to teach others to do so. In a real fundamental sense, like that's what discipleship is. What it means to be a disciple is to obey Jesus' commands and to teach others to do so. Now, what were Jesus' commandments? We can think of the Ten Commandments. We can think of the commandments in the Old Testament. Well, the Gospels contain the things that Jesus taught and commanded, but primarily, if I had to point you to one large section where Jesus' commandments are given, it's really Matthew 5 to Matthew 7. It's the Sermon on the Mount. And what Jesus does is he gives all of these commandments and in his teaching, and he does something to the law, and he does something to a lot of the Old Testament commandments. He expands on them. So, for instance, the law says don't murder. But Jesus says it's wrong even to harbor anger against your brother. It's wrong to insult someone. In fact, the consequences for wantonly insulting people, Jesus says in Matthew 5 and 22, is the fires of hell. That's how much he cares about us, not just... So if I can say it like this, <clears throat> the law gives us the floor. So if don't murder, don't commit murder is the floor. It's at the lowest common denominator, don't do this. What Jesus does is he gives us the ceiling. Not only don't kill people, but don't harbor anger towards them. Don't insult them for no reason. In fact, love them. So there's the floor and the ceiling. And, and we think that Jesus, Jesus lightens the law, that he makes the law kind of, ah, no big deal. Actually, in some cases, Jesus increases the law's command. He increases the commandments sometimes. The law is the floor, the bare minimum of what you shouldn't do. Jesus' commands point toward the ceiling, and this is what the Apostle John says in 1 John 2, 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. How do we know that we've come to know him? We keep his commandments. We want to keep his commandments. The teaching aspect of the faith is huge because in it we learn what it means to be like Jesus. I think it's easy for us to think that maybe the commandments in the Bible are arbitrary. But the truth is, is all of God's commands are meant to make our lives more beautiful and healthy, right? Like, I love junk food, but um, it's better for me to eat more vegetables and fruits. Now, I have to admit, sometimes broccoli doesn't taste as good as a hamburger. But a life of hamburgers makes me a lot less healthy and vibrant than a life of like broccoli and celery and things like that. And so the law and God's commandments are meant to make our lives beautiful. They're meant to beautify our lives. They're actually meant to make our lives healthy and whole and happy. Because as much as it may feel good at the moment to eat nothing but hamburgers, when you've got to go to the doctor to get those arteries cleared, you'll be wishing you have eaten more vegetables. And you know something? The more I eat vegetables, the more I love them. Now, 
Some of you, all you just heard was obey Jesus because it's like eating your vegetables. <laughs> you don't want to do it, but it's good for you. Like, that, maybe that illustration failed, but I hope you get what I'm trying to say. The commandments are good for us. They make our lives healthy. Loving your neighbor is good for you. Not harboring a grudge and anger towards people. That's good for you. Forgiving other people, even though they didn't ask for it, is good for you. It makes us healthy, whole, happy people. Following Jesus and obeying his commands, they don't, they don't make our lives less enjoyable. They actually free us up to live in the way that God originally intended us to live. And in a real sense, they make us more human. It's sort of unhuman to live entirely for yourself, to feed your own lusts and appetites and desires. That is not the way God originally made us. Sin does that to people. Sin makes us live just for ourselves. <clears throat> and number four, we're sustained by Jesus' presence. Verse 20. And behold, I am with you always, to the, even to the end of the age. Now, Jesus does not close the commission with a command, but with a word of comfort. If the Great Commission is in verse 19, verse 18 and verse 20, bracket out the Great Commission by two words, power and peace, or presence. The power of Jesus and the presence of Jesus are cradling our lives of mission because we're on mission from God. And all of what we do, all of what we say is held together by his power and his presence. It's interesting that Matthew closes this, the end of his book with the idea of Jesus's for you know, in any place, presence, because in the very beginning of Matthew, Jesus is called Emmanuel. You remember that? He shall be called Emmanuel, right? God with us. And here is, again, this reminder that God is with us. He's with us in all we do. And you know something? The presence of God and the power of God, I mentioned it a little earlier, does not necessarily preclude suffering, it's not a get-out-of-jail-free ticket. But it is this comfort and promise that he is with you. His power and presence is with you in every trial, every hardship, every circumstance, every affliction. I've had a few anxious weeks. We live in an anxious age. <clears throat> and... Anxiety does something to you. It kind of robs your peace if you're not careful. And so we have to preach the gospel to us, to ourselves, on a daily basis to remind us, God is with me in this anxiety, in this anxious circumstance. You know, stuff is hitting the fan, but God is with me in this. And he'll see me through. And if you've been a Christian any amount of time, you can see God's track record that he has brought you through, hasn't he? Hasn't God been with you through trials? Hasn't God, his presence and his power 
manifested itself as you've gone through suffering and hardships? He does. And so the promise is, as you go making disciples, as you go obeying Jesus' teaching and observe, teaching others to observe his teaching, know that his power and his presence is not only with you, but it will never leave you or forsake you. God loves you, God is with you, and God has given you his power. Let's pray. Father, thank you now for this message of comfort and peace that the Son has all power in heaven and on earth, and that there is nothing that can arise in our lives that he has not already foreseen, and that the strength to do what you want us to do and be the kind of people you want us to be, and teaching others to do so as well, is held up by this charge that you've given us in Matthew to go and make disciples, baptizing and teaching, baptizing and teaching. Help us, Lord, live out our baptism. Help us obey your teaching and teach others to do so. But we can't do it in our own strength. We do it only through your empowering and your abiding presence, which is with us always. We thank you in Christ's name, amen.